0: You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Like Flint Radio. You can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. I'm your host, GK, and with me on the line is Dr. James Hannam. Now, Dr. Hannam is the author of uh, God's Philosophers, How the Medieval World Laid the Foundation of Modern Science. That's the UK title, and I believe the US title is the Genesis of Science: How the Christian Middle Ages Launched the Scientific Revolution. Uh, so, welcome to Like Flint Radio, Dr. Hannam. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Look, I'm just so grateful that you agreed to the interview. Um, ever since I heard about your book, I'm uh, been uh, looking forward to reading it. And uh, and then I thought, look, we must talk to this uh, this author. So I'm very grateful that you've uh, you've actually said yes. Um, just for the sake of our audience, would you mind telling us a bit about who you are and uh, what you do, you know, that's relevant to your work on this book?
1: Well, um, to probably tell from my accent, um, I'm English um, and uh, I live in a beautiful part of the world, Kent, um, south of London, uh, although it is snowing here at the moment, um, and uh, my, my first degree um, was in physics, so I've always been very interested in science. Um, but after uh, a few years of working as an accountant, um, I uh, got the itch for history, so I took some time out and uh, went to um, Cambridge University to do a PhD in the history of science, um, and uh, also at that time started to uh, research and uh, write the book uh, that you you kindly mentioned, um, God's Philosophers, um, and the reason I. I wanted to write that book was that, um, as, uh, as a Christian and as um, uh, a physicist, I'd always been rather confused by this idea that uh, there was this great conflict between science and religion that you couldn't be uh, a Christian and you, uh, believe in science at the same time, because that had never really been a problem for me, uh, and indeed I'd found that uh, some of the uh, amazing elegance of the laws of physics, which I had learned at university... Um, really sort of encouraged me to to see the universe as, as a creation rather than just a, uh, a random fluke. Um, so I wanted to explore uh, whether or not uh, Christianity really had been an obstacle to the advance of science. And also, uh, because of my interest in history, and, and particularly um, medieval history, I wanted to understand better um, how Western science uh, arose in the first place. Um, and I thought uh, that it was very likely that uh, those roots would be found um, in the Middle Ages before the, the so-called scientific revolution, because I don't believe that uh, history is a story of great men suddenly having fantastic ideas and writing great books. It's always, it's always much more um, gradual than that. So I started reading some books by historians uh, like Edward Grant and uh, David Lindbergh, Um, And I found that actually um, historians of science had already discovered a great deal of interesting things about what science uh, and maths and technology was like in the Middle Ages and how advanced and important it was and how that um, had uh, significantly laid foundations for uh, the modern Western science that we know today. So I realised that there were two really interesting things um, that... Perhaps the general public didn't know very well, firstly, that uh, science and Christianity have generally got on um, through history, and Christianity has generally been supportive of science, Um, and secondly, that um, the Middle Ages were not some backward, superstitious dark age, they were, uh, in fact, an era um, of of reason and progress um, and important developments in science.
0: Well, I, I think um, you, you've uh, taken my second question away from me there, um, James. Um, I really was keen to ask you why you wrote the book. And uh, I had figured as much as uh, basically what you said, um, you know, the personal uh, issues aside. You know, something you said resonates with me too. I, I think history is not necessarily about the the, uh, the larger figures. We know that they build on those who went before them. So I think it's this gradual building, if you like, and imagine a a wall building being built and, you know, someone will come along and add another piece. And I I really think that's how it works. So that kind of is something that uh, resonates with me and I agree with. Um, Now, this book is really jam-packed with information. Um, I mean, it contains all the things that I'm interested in. This is why why I wanted to talk to you and read the book. But, you know, it contains uh, history... Uh, biography, uh, religion, um, even opinion. And I think it's a great book for someone with an interest in how we got to where we are now. I love looking at those sort of things myself. Uh, Like I say, that's why I was so keen to read it. And I think I told you um, earlier in an email that I I have the Kindle copy, which I've read. I've read that in a few days, but I also have ordered a physical copy because I still like that feel of having that book in your hand and, and and reading that. So I haven't quite moved into the 21st century myself there. But anyway, what I wanted to say was um, there are a lot of well-known figures and topics in this book and, um, and some lesser-known ones and we'll obviously not be able to cover them all. And so what I thought we might do is if I could just pick out a couple of the major figures, a couple of the major themes and maybe one or two minor ones and then we can let the reader read the book and discover all the other wonderful stories that are in there um, from this era so to that end can I ask you um, just in general why does Aristotle uh, feature so heavily in your work and why does he weigh so heavily in the great figures of the middle ages what why why do we have to know about Aristotle I guess is a question
1: Aristotle, of course, was uh, the ancient Greek philosopher who was Plato's student, um, and he lived around about 300 BC, so long long before the Middle Ages. Uh, But his um, system of philosophy was really all-encompassing. It it covered ethics, it covered um, astronomy, it covered uh, logic, lots and lots of logic. Um, It covered uh, what we today would call Uh, biology, natural history, and it covered physics. Um, It really was this amazing, all-encompassing system. So when, um, during the 11th and 12th century, uh, theologians um, in the European Middle Ages, uh, having um, basically managed to digest everything that they'd inherited uh, in in Latin from the Romans, wanted to um, get to the next stage, if you like, and really get to... Uh, what the most uh, important and, and, and involved um, ancient Greek philosophy was, and what that could tell them about the world, then Aristotle um, was very definitely their go to man um, because his his work is is just uh, just so all encompassing it 's such a stupendous achievement, and I suppose in some ways um, that was part of the problem because Aristotle was so clearly such uh, a universal genius. Uh, people stopped questioning whether or not he was actually right or wrong. And it's uh, unfortunate that Aristotle's uh, science, uh, by the the standards that we would judge science today, how well it explains the natural world, was 100 um, uh, percent, well, not 100 percent, but about 90 percent um, incorrect. Um, and because of his great reputation, people were actually quite slow to recognize that, both in the... Um, in the ancient world uh, and in the medieval world, and indeed also um, in the Islamic world, where he was also um, an extremely influential author. So one of the things that uh, God's Philosophers is about is how um, European Christian scholars got hold of Aristotle and then they started questioning him. And they questioned him um, for... Uh, reasons which don't perhaps sound terribly scientific. They questioned him um, because they were worried that he conflicted uh, with certain aspects of Christianity. For example, Aristotle thinks the universe is eternal, and of course Christians believe that the universe was created at some point in time by God. Um, Aristotle believes that we don't really have individuals' immortal souls, where of course Christianity believes that there is um, an immortal part to us. Um, and because of those those conflicts, um, Christian scholars were perhaps willing to be more sceptical about Aristotle, and sometimes, in fact, they were forced to be more sceptical by um, the Church, telling them that they couldn't just assume that Aristotle was right. And that scepticism, which was originally based on religious grounds, gradually extended, um, I think, so that they started questioning him on matters of science, such as whether or not a a vacuum could exist, or whether light objects and heavy objects should fall at the same time, or whether the earth was turning, um, and questions like that. So the initial religious um, impulse to question Aristotle and to try and Christianize him was also, I think, a great help um, in recognizing that he was generally fallible in a way that perhaps his great admirers didn't accept.
0: Right, right. Now, I think um, because the reason I asked that is because um, all through the book there are references back to Aristotle, and and we probably will be coming back to him a bit, a little bit later on. But I think I think you've covered it very well there, um, just to give an understanding why he is he does feature so much. Um, now, with your permission, before I ask my next question, I'd like to read um, just a short part of uh, passage from your book. Um, Uh, It says that modern science is a very specific kind of knowledge that blends empirical experimentation with rational analysis. Today we take it for granted and trust it to provide us with accurate information about nature. It is hard to believe that a few centuries ago this scientific way of thinking hardly existed. Before the edifice of modern science could be built, it required the strong foundations that were laid for it in the Middle Ages. The cornerstone was a widespread acceptance of reason as a valid tool for discovering the truth about our world. Clearly this could not happen without the approval of the church, which at the time was the guardian of almost all intellectual endeavours. This meant that the development of reason and its relationship with faith are both important parts of our story. So prevalent did rational argument become among philosophers during the Middle Ages that the period deserves to be thought of as the beginning of the age of reason. Uh, Now, with this in mind, would it be fair to say that the main movers and shakers of the Middle Ages were more about uh, hypothesis, reason, and can I even say contemplation, than they were about empirical, scientific, hands-on study or method? Is that a way to explain it just in a general broad
1: way? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, w- the idea of doing experiments in a way um, that science really does rely on today wasn't something which was um, particularly um, popular during the Middle Ages. We we really only first see it coming in during the, the later part of the 17th century um, because... There are some some things about experiments which are actually quite strange when you think about them. For example, um, you're supposed to do experiments to prove something that you already think is right. And if something has been um, argued rationally, and it rationally seems to be correct, it does seem rather strange that you have to do an experiment to find out whether it's actually true. And it took a long time for people to realise that, in fact, just because something seems rational and logical to us, it doesn't necessarily mean... That, that is the way that nature actually works. And um, the fact that the people um, in the Middle Ages who were thinking about these things were, were Christians actually helped slightly in this respect, because um, for them, they knew that um, the universe had been created by God. They knew that God had freedom as to how he created the universe. Um, and that meant that the way that the universe worked was really just a function of God's will. They thought that God was reliable, they thought that God didn't change his mind, so the laws of nature that God had laid down would be permanent, if you like, they were worth investigating, but they weren't necessarily something which was going to be um, possible for human beings to work out from first logical principles. And that meant that, in fact, they realised that perhaps they did actually have to go out and look at the real world in order to decide whether or not their rational conclusions were correct. And this, I suppose, going back to Aristotle, was one of the problems that um, people found with his work. He would use some basic observation, and then he would build enormous great rational um, conclusions on top of that. And he wouldn't then try and find out if those conclusions were actually true he thought that they were logically necessary they they had to be true and therefore there wasn't any point in actually doing an experiment to find out if they were true
0: right right and that and that is the impression that i get from reading this book but um for many of us if you watch a popular film you'll see someone uh you know in a in a, a candle lit cavern somewhere working feverishly away on some something with but hands on you know they 'll be fiddling with something hands on and uh, I guess um, the one thing that um, reading this book has shown me because I have to admit the uh, middle ages is not my my strong suit i, I have studied uh, ancient and modern so either side of it but um uh, so that was one reason why I had to ask that. also um I'd like to talk about, and I hope I get the pronunciation right, but um, uh, is it Gerbert, Gerbert of Aurelian? if I got that, Aurillac? Yes, that's right.
1: Would Gerbert, Gerbert, who who, who
0: becomes uh, uh, Pope Sylvester in in the year nine nine nine.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: Right. Um, now I wanted to ask you a little bit about him because I wanted to talk about one of the one of the um, people that uh, say people wouldn't be familiar with, um, so they get a taste, because there's so many of these people in your book, um, uh, we could spend hours talking about each one, uh, so just to give people a taste of what what is in the book, I thought I would choose someone like this, and I'll just read a little bit of your book again, and then um, we could probably talk about it, but um, it says that Gerbert introduced some of the knowledge of the Arabs to a Christian audience. His surviving letters show that he considered arithmetic to be a useful skill. In a series of letters to a monk called Constantine of Fleury, he patiently explained the rudiments. Richard mentions how Gerbert used a musical instrument called a monochord to teach harmonics to his students. He also gave instructions on how to make astronomical apparatus and frequently mentioned his excitement at finding lost Manuscripts. His greatest claim to fame is that he helped to introduce Arabic numerals into the West. He incorporated them into the abacus, which was used for almost all calculations in his day, to produce a more efficient instrument. His modified abacus used beads with numbers inscribed on them. How important is Gerbert to the story uh, of the advancement during the Middle Ages? Like, it seems to me that he covers a couple of key areas here. You know, we have astronomy. We have, obviously, mathematics. We have, obviously, manuscript reading. Now, I'm not sure if he was translating, but definitely uh, searching for and reading
1: them. So how important is he to the story? Well, I think the significance of Gerbert is that he shows that even in the period that uh... Traditionally, was called the Dark Ages at the 10th century AD. There was um, a lot of interest in in science and mathematics in Europe, and someone like Gerbert, um, he he knew that the part of the world that he was living in was rather behind the times. Um, so he was he was very keen to ensure um, that that his his people um, became better acquainted with um, mass and with, with astronomy and uh, with the the work of uh, the ancient Greeks that the Arabs already knew about and he of course was a churchman um, because uh, most um, most scholars of the day were churchmen of course um, but he shows that uh, even if uh, among common people perhaps there was some suspicion about these sort of foreign uh, sciences and Gerbert's uh, reputation as a as a magician, according to legend, uh, um, owes something to that. As far as the intelligentsia in and the church were concerned, these were all um, valid and important things that uh, um, he and his colleagues were, were interested in. And, of course, given he became pope in the end, it certainly did his career no harm at all. He was one of the few popes in the Middle Ages um, to actually come from a humble background, which uh, does suggest that he was a man of really quite um, impressive abilities. So I think what Gerbert shows us is that even before um, the period of the Middle Ages where um, the intellectual um, work which I spent most of the, the book talking about um, took place, there was this hunger for knowledge um, in um, in Europe and uh, Europeans actually were going out and they were trying to find out what it was that they were missing, they were visiting um, Byzantium, they were visiting Arab Spain, uh, not always very friendly visits, it has to be said, uh, and they were gathering together all the manuscripts and knowledge that they possibly could, um, because they wanted to make sure um, that they were um, equipped with the the latest and the best mathematical and scientific knowledge.
0: Right, now, I I find it interesting also, too, um, uh, James, that he was accused of sorcery, um, because he, it was said that he, uh, his knowledge came from a magical brass head that I assume he ca- he carried around with him. Is that is that just a a, a story from that era? Uh, is there any truth to that?
1: I, I think that's just a story. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think I think that um, um, that the head itself has actually got an interesting um, interesting history mm-hmm. uh, um, because it's uh, allegedly. Um, was then passed on to some other figures um later in the middle ages it it ends up in the hands for example of, of Roger Bacon um in the 13th century and uh, in fact um it is alleged to still exist it it it's to be found in the um in the dining room of Brasenose College uh Oxford um Brasenow's College um in fact uh, that its its name uh, literally means brass nose. Right. Uh, that is a uh, a reference to this um, brass door knocker. Yes. Uh, which is a, of a gargoyle, the original now being kept indoors, which is, um, according to legend, the same head um, that uh, was giving Gerbert and Roger Bacon their, their knowledge. Um, so it, it's, it's it's a lovely myth, I think, that, mm. that has this um, authentic uh, medieval piece of sculpture um, behind it.
0: And now I'm assuming being a former student, um, uh, James, you would have seen this uh, uh, head, this brass. Yes, it, it, it's, it's a medieval
1: door knocker. Door knocker, door knocker, yes. Uh, um, so I'm
0: assuming you would have seen it while you are at
1: Oxford. Yes, I've seen it in, 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 in Bray's Nose, and there's actually a replica now on the door of the college itself. Right.
0: Okay, um, now we we see from the example of Gerbert, and you mentioned this uh, term, the churchman, because this is what I had written down here for my question. Um, We see from the example of Gerbert and others in the book that the majority, if not all of the characters that you discuss were all churchmen, um, and some were more senior than others. What involvement did the church of the time? And obviously we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church here, but what what role did the church play in the advancement of knowledge? And I guess the secondary question is, did it somehow hold the keys to learning? I mean, if you weren't a churchman, could, would you have access to knowledge and learning and education?
1: Well, I think to answer your second question first, um, mm-hmm. you, if you weren't a churchman and you wanted to um, have access to books and that sort of thing, you needed money. Um, it wasn't like there was a universal free education system like we have today. So the church was effectively um, the closest that there was to public schools and that sort of thing, so that people who didn't have money could have access to knowledge. Most uh, churchmen, um, most senior churchmen, actually were um, quite uh, privileged people, but uh, in the book I do mention. Um, one or two such as Gerbert who used the church um, as a way to satisfy their their own uh, desire for for learning and and scholarship and there were a few other people from humble backgrounds whose whose abilities were such that they were able to advance in a church in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do um, in secular life without having some kind of sort of material advantages um, and I suppose that Perhaps a more important question is, is why the church was was so um, interested, so positive, if you like, um, about uh, subjects like uh, logic and science and maths, which don't immediately seem to be all that connected to theology. And we can see why the church might be very interested in, in theology. Um, but it was very clear, um, I think, to um, church scholars that... Um, In order to do theology properly, the queen of the sciences, they firstly had to have a full understanding um, of other branches of knowledge. So, for example, if you wanted to study theology at the universities, um, you first had to go and study uh, a load of other things. You had to study grammar, you had to study rhetoric, arithmetic, astronomy, ethics, um, physics, loads of other things. Uh, And only once you'd actually got your book, bachelor's and your master's degree in those um, sort of um, basic subjects if you like were you allowed to go on to the higher faculties um, and actually start working on theology itself so the church viewed subjects like science or which of course was the study of of God's creation and subjects like logic um, as at the very least um, excellent training for the mind um, for the scholars who would then go on to be theologians. And um, I suppose the relationship between between faith and and reason could could be summed up as follows. Um, The Church believed that there are certain things that Christians can only know through faith, such as, um, for example, the Trinity uh, or the mechanics of, of salvation. But they also believed that no aspect of the Christian faith could um, conflict with reason, because, of course, reason and faith were both ultimately parts of God's creation. Um, and that meant that it was, it was right and proper that they, they, should, they should use reason as far as possible to um, study theology, because if something did conflict with reason then they could be pretty sure that it was um, incorrect as far as a matter of faith was concerned. Um, They didn't think that you could prove matters of faith with reason, but they didn't think that reason could ever conflict true matters of faith. And that made reason a useful tool for distinguishing between heretical statements um, and orthodox statements.
0: other big topics from this era. Um, you note in your book that by the year 1000 AD, uh, men and women of any education knew that the earth was a sphere and it wasn't flat. So where does the myth come from that people in this era believed that the earth was flat? Because you often hear it, don't you? That uh, people will say, well look, it was only a couple of hundred years ago that people thought the earth was flat. So where does that
1: myth come from? Well, that's... Um a question, actually, which I could I could probably um, spend the next half an hour talking about. So I will restrain <laughs> myself. Okay. I, I okay. think that the the myth of the flat earth, the idea that people in the Middle Ages thought that the earth was flat, um, begins with um, Sir Francis Bacon, who you may have heard of, who was a, an English uh, lawyer and philosopher of the uh, um, early seventeenth century. And um, Sir Francis Bacon um, was uh, a Protestant, of course. Um, And he wrote quite a lot uh, which was intended to defend the Protestant uh, Church in England against the Catholic Church. Uh, And in the course of of that work, he he spread a few uh, untruths about the Catholic Church, let's put it that way. Uh, And one of the things that he he said was that, well, look, the Catholics were so ridiculous that um, in the Middle Ages they were persecuting people for saying that the earth isn't flat. And that seems to be where this idea originally came from. Um, And it's taken 500 years or so for academics to finally convince themselves that nobody in the Middle Ages thought that the Earth was flat. Um, It was uh, for a long time assumed that maybe intellectuals knew that it was a sphere, but the common people would have thought it was flat. Well, we have no evidence of that at all. We have no evidence that common people thought that the Earth was flat because... For example, we know from sermons which were um, delivered to ordinary people, there are references to the earth being a sphere. Um, we know, for instance, that when a, a medieval king, and indeed when the Queen of England was, was crowned in 1952, um, she uh, and, and her medieval antecedents were handed a, an orb, which was a, a symbol of their, their earthly power. And the point was that this orb represented the earth. Um, and of course... Uh, Uh, For an orb to represent the Earth, you have to know that the Earth is a sphere, because otherwise you would presumably have presented your monarch with a dinner plate. And that means (laughs) that we really have no evidence at all for anybody um, in the Middle Ages believing the Earth was flat. There are uh, some figures during the uh, late antiquity, up until around about 600 or 700 AD, uh, one or two who who do support a flat Earth, um, but after that, really nobody. But what is interesting, I think, is that there were disputes, um, and and as um, as an Australian, you you may well um, find this particularly relevant. Um, there were disputes about whether or not the Southern Hemisphere um, could possibly be inhabited, um, and it seems that some of these disputes, um, where people were were arguing that it, it's surely not possible for anyone to. To live on the other side of the world, how would they get there? Um, um, Won't they all be standing upside down, etc., etc.? Have been misinterpreted disputes, not about whether or not there was somebody living in Australia, um, but as to whether or not the Earth was flat and not a sphere.
0: That's right, because uh, as you point out in your book, um, they believed that you couldn't cross the equator. That's correct, isn't it?
1: That that's right. So that was a belief which came from the ancient world. A lot mm. of the. A lot of the uh, the beliefs which uh, people in the Middle Ages thought, uh, which we now know are, are wrong, were actually not um, medieval ideas at all. They were ideas from the ancient world which they had inherited, um, and then um, gradually realised were wrong. And of course, they realised that you can cross the equator by, um, well, sailing across it.
0: Yes, yes. Um, uh, now, look, I find that I find that uh, the idea of the flat Earth fascinating, and there are some can I say, alternate media-type uh, podcast shows that I've heard <clears throat> where some people are now arguing once again for a flat earth. Uh, they don't believe that we're on we're, we're, we're living on this ball, uh, this sphere, um, and I've listened to them uh, in amazement, and um, reading your book has just made me realise um, uh, some ideas uh, are never shaken off. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, we know a very important event, or can I say a rather series of of rather a series of events, in the Middle Ages was the translation of the early Greek writers into Latin. Now, a lot of this came after the fall of Constantinople uh, and it came from contact with uh, Muslims in Spain and I guess other parts of the Mediterranean. How important was this? And, and by that I mean, would Europe have moved on at the pace it did without these manuscripts having been translated as we know, when you point out, you know, from Greek to Arabic and then from Arabic into Latin, would would Europe have been the power that it became if we didn't have these Greek writers that they, they, they so
1: desperately wanted to read at that time? Well, I suppose that sort of counterfactual is quite difficult to answer because we certainly do know that the translation movement, as you say, both from Arabic um, and from Greek, um was a, a substantial impetus uh, towards European intellectual life. It allowed medieval Europeans to, to catch up, if you like, um, so that they were um, able to, to become as, as knowledgeable in, 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 um, in, in maths and science and, and logic and other subjects as um, the most advanced ancient Greeks had been. Of course, as you know, Um, Western Europe had been overrun by pagan barbarians uh, during the 4th, 5th and 6th centuries and just when everyone um, had recovered from that the Vikings then descended on Europe as well um, in the 8th and ninth centuries so it really wasn't until around about Gerbert's era um, that Europe had become, I suppose, even sufficiently peaceful for any kind of um, civilization to start um, advancing again even though someone like Gerbert uh, w- was fully aware of, of, of what he was missing. So I think that the translation movement was certainly a shot in the arm. Um, one, one thing which um, perhaps a lot of people might think is that um, the translation movement came exclusively uh, from the Arabs, that uh, all the ancient Greek works were translated by the Arabs um, and then would have been lost if the Arabs hadn't kept them, and that was how Europe... Um, was able to to reclaim those works, if you like. Um, but in fact, very little, not none at all, but very little um, ancient Greek science and, and medicine has actually been, been lost in the original Greek. It was all preserved in the Byzantine Empire. Um, and as a result of that, much of the translation um, came directly from the Greeks rather than being indirectly um, acquired from the Arabs.
0: Right, so as... As the survivors of the fall of Constantinople moved west, they would have carried um, a number of these uh, Greek manuscripts with them.
1: Well, it was uh, it was before that actually, back okay. in the 12th century, where mm-hmm. where Western Western missionaries and and diplomats were travelling to Constantinople and other Greek parts of the world, right. and basically um, buying up manuscripts and and translating them, um, and also during the Fourth Crusade when Constantinople was um, occupied. Um, by Western crusaders in, in one of the um, most notable crimes, I suppose, of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, yeah. That did mean that they they had immediate access to uh, all the Byzantine libraries, and they took um, advantage of that.
0: Um, I want to turn to one of the other big figures too um, from the era. Um, Thomas Aquinas, now, of course, I've heard of him before, and I know a little bit about him, but um, I'll just read a little bit from your book. Um Uh, Thomas Aquinas was the prime exponent of the extremely methodical and carefully organized system that medieval philosophers used to construct rational arguments. Today we call this mode of argument the scholastic method, and hence the entire body of medieval thought is often described by the single word scholasticism. Obviously this is a very important method. Um,
1: Can you tell us why it's so important? Well, the scholastic method was really a way of trying to put down your arguments in as uh, most clear and logical fashion that, that you could. And so what you would effectively do is you would list um, all the arguments in your favor and then you would try and disprove them and then you would list the arguments which were against you, and then you would try and disprove them, and then you would have some commentary, um, and then you would draw your conclusion from all the arguments that you'd made above. Um, So it really was just a way of trying to set out arguments in a clear and logical way, just to ensure that um, you were engaged in the minimum of arm-waving while you were... Why you were making your point, and this has a slightly unfortunate effect um, of making a lot of scholastic work very, very dry, yeah. Um, yeah. as far as uh, trying to read it is concerned, you 'll be able to find, yes. um, if you wanted to, a lot of uh, Thomas Aquinas 's works on the Internet, um, and um, although it, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating stuff, it is uh, very um, very compact. Uh, and is expressed in a way which isn't really intended to be anyone's idea of bedtime reading. Right, right. <laughs> but what it did do was ensure that uh, scholastic thinkers uh, like Aquinas um, were able to to set out their arguments in a way where um, later writers, if they wanted to, were able to follow exactly what the argument was, and they could comment on that, uh, and they could they could try and counter it if they wanted to. Um, and it, it meant that um, the tradition of medieval scholarship really was one of dispute. It was one of making arguments, making counter-arguments, making counter-counter-arguments, and trying to set all of that out in as clear a way as they possibly could.
0: Now, he holds a high position in the in the Catholic Church uh, now, doesn't he? He's, uh, is, he a, is it a doctor he's called? Is that correct?
1: Um, yes, yes. So Thomas Aquinas, of course, was was canonized uh, right. very after he died, so he, right. he's he's a saint in the Catholic Church, right? Um, and uh, yes, he's also one of the doctors of the Church, who right. are um, not necessarily saints. Actually, that so they are the uh, the leading um, intellectuals uh, of, of Catholic history, right? Um, and there's very they, few
0: of them, isn't there, James? Very few of them.
1: Um, there aren't actually all that many. I don't mm. know exactly how many there are. Mm. Um, and and they are still um, it's still possible for them to be um, declared doctors of the church today. Yes, I understand. Uh, uh, for instance, that my my own um, patron saint, if you like, uh, the Venerable Bede, right. um, was was made into a doctor of the church uh, um, relatively recently by right. a Catholic staff. It's just an honorary title, right? Yes, yes, yes.
0: Um, I I just remember somewhere in the past reading that there's very very few of them, and I, I can't put a number on it, but uh, it, there's not many and I, I think that tells you just how important um, let's say uh, Aquinas and, and Bede as you've just mentioned is to the church now we we couldn't uh, have this discussion uh, about your book without mentioning Galileo because you've dedicated three chapters to him, can we talk a little bit about Galileo, now I know we once again we, um, we have a time constraint but um, let our audience know why you devoted three chapters to Galileo and why he so features so much in your book and, and obviously in, in history.
1: Well, I, I wanted to devote a lot of attention to Galileo for, for two reasons. Um, the first reason is that much of Galileo's uh, physics um, and indeed even some of his astronomy owes a great deal to his medieval predecessors. Uh, but Galileo doesn't um, make any reference to that in his work. So for um, very many years, he was assumed to be much more of an original and a radical thinker than he actually was. Uh, So uh, what I've tried to do is show what elements of Galileo's thought, and they are very important elements, actually had um, their precursors in the Middle Ages, and to, to show that Galileo, who is often thought of as being one of the founders Um, of modern science actually wasn't some bolt from the blue. Uh, He was a man who was um, building his ideas on what had come previously, and thus um, he wasn't quite the revolutionary figure that he's often made out to be. And I suppose the second reason it was important to spend a lot of time on Galileo is that when you ask people for examples of the conflict between science and religion, Galileo is always one of the one or two things that they mention because he was put on trial by the Inquisition for saying that the earth goes around the sun. And historians have studied this trial in very great depth and they've concluded that although the Catholic Church obviously made a catastrophic mistake when it um, put Galileo on trial, um, the background of that trial turns out to have perhaps rather less to do with science and rather more to do with politics and the papal ego um, and Galileo's own touchiness than it does um, to do with actual questions of science. And if the personalities involved had not been uh, quite so uh, grating on, on both sides, it's very possible that the the trial of Galileo would never have happened and that the church would never have been faced by this embarrassment of banning um, the works of, of uh, Galileo and, and um, saying that uh, the earth actually doesn't go round the sun because, of course, uh, that's one of the, the uh, most egregious uh, of uh, um, foolish mistakes that the, the Catholic Church has ever made.
0: Right, and um, in my opinion, um, those three chapters about Galileo were the most entertaining but don't turn to the back of the book and read them first um, because I love the story about uh, how he uh, took the lead balls and dropped them off the Tower of Pisa um, those sort of stories I find fascinating and um, but um, there's so much more that you will have to read before you get to those three chapters so don't, don't rush to the back of the book um, uh, just before we finish up uh, James um, what were some of the major discoveries from that time? Because I think that's what's really interesting. Um, uh, We've got things like the stirrup, obviously the telescope, uh, gunpowder, uh, spectacles. Um, have I missed
1: anything from the list? Um, well, I think the mechanical clock is, is a very significant invention as well. So, yes, I, I I think we were talking about technology and, and getting getting uh, hand, hands-on sorts of things a bit right, earlier. Right. And I, it's an important distinction, which we probably don't recognise today, that uh, technology and science were, were almost totally unrelated during the Middle Ages, um, and, indeed, they were totally unrelated right up until the 19th century. Um, that, that technology was really about trial and error, it was about tinkering, it was... Um, about um, not really going up about things in a rational way, but just sort of seeing what worked um and technological advance therefore was a little bit hit and miss but but it did definitely happen, and that there were um these extremely significant technological advances in the middle ages because people were very open to change and you know, they were very open to outside ideas. Things like gunpowder and a stirrup, of course, came from, from the East originally, but were adopted, like the compass, um, by Europeans um, very readily indeed.
0: That's right. And I had to ask a question because I think people, when they think about this sort of topic, are going to want to know, OK, so what are we talking about? What do we actually get from this? Uh, so I think in the clock, but obviously that was extremely important. And um, I like the uh, reference to uh, Farah Zhaka in the book as well um, when you talked about um, uh, the ringing of the bells and time. Um, I found that fascinating as well because I had no idea where that uh, rhyme had come from.
1: The book is intended very much um, for general readers. I'd hope you you found that, and it's not intended to be academic. Um, Though it does contain a lot of information, um, it does have, for example, a list of characters and a timeline and and that sort of thing. I I hope um, I've been able to make it as accessible um, as, as I possibly can because my aim very much was that these sorts of things needed to be um, communicated to the general public and not right. just sort of hidden right. away in academic books as they had been today.
0: I think you're right there. Uh, that's why I say um, it helped me understand that medieval mindset. Um, uh, and like I said, I've read the book very quickly, but I, I think I've got an understanding, and this book would be for anyone that is, has an interest in these areas, and as you said, then we don't have to go digging through all those uh, the ancient works to get an understanding. So yes, no, it is very, very accessible. Well, I think we might leave it there. Um, I'd just like to say that um, the main thing that I personally got out of this book, it was good for me to um, get a grasp on the medieval mindset. That's the main thing I got, I think. Um, I like the stories about the individual uh, characters and um, also the, you know, just the little anecdotal um, stories about their lives not necessarily the big things but also the small things that they uh, that they were known for or had been said about them but I think as I said earlier I can't wait to get my hands on the physical copy of the book because I want to read it again and probably again and again I recommend it to other people but also there will be some things that people will find they don't agree with like there's not one author I've ever read that I've agreed with everything and I, and I would just say to people that there will be some things especially uh, evangelicals or whatever there will be some some things in here you might find um, uh, that you don't agree with, but if you want to get an understanding of um, the, uh, the Middle Ages and that mindset, how they thought, the times they lived in, and some of the pressures that they were under, uh, can we say religious and civil, um, it gives you an idea of how, how times were. But just before we go, um, James, could you tell us uh, where people can get a hold of your book uh, where to find your website and how to contact you if they want to.
1: Yes, I mean, it's in print. Um, it, it should be. Uh, it can be ordered by um, bookshops in, in, in Australia, South Africa, mm-hmm. in, in the UK, in, in the US if you ask for Genesis of Science rather than God's Philosophers. Um, right. And you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Kindle, you can get it as an Apple iBook. So it, it, is, it is still uh, widely available um, and uh, has been distributed um, throughout the world um and if any of your readers don't speak english uh, or don't prefer not to read english it's being translated into uh, german uh, and dutch and uh, portuguese and an italian version is is about to come out as well
0: oh excellent i did see that on your website so can you give um our listeners your website address please yes that's
1: jameshannam.com well
0: i'd just like to say i thoroughly enjoyed your book uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion with you, and on behalf of Light Flint Radio, I'd like to say thank you for coming on to the show, Dr. James Hannam. Uh,
1: so, uh, That's right. Be my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.